0: Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow,
3: and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner
4: Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. We've got a great one uh, in store today. Of course, they're always great because we get to uh, hear from and get to know some very interesting uh, people coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour today. We're going to be talking with children's uh, book writer, uh, winner of the Gold Moms Choice Award. Um, Nadine Haruni, I believe is how you pronounce uh, her name. She is the creator of the Frida the Frog book series, her newest uh, book. Frida the Frog and Her New Blue Family looks at uh, diversity, equality, and blended families in a way that's... Uh, Easy for kids to digest. So we'll be talking with uh, Nadine coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour. In the middle of the show, we're going to talk with uh, John Kelly from Zenreach. He is the uh, Zenreach CEO. Zenreach is uh, a company that uh, that helps businesses um, track their their activity. Uh, through online clicks and and other things and and he'll explain all that when we talk with him as he has before when he's been on the show but we're going to talk about the impact of COVID-19 over this past year on uh, restaurants for one um, who've been very hard hit by the impacts and and uh responses to the pandemic. But retail has taken a hit too. We're going to talk about both of those things with uh, John Kelly. But first, we're going to uh, talk to the newest um, uh, addition to the Rick Riordan Presents series. He's the author of uh, a new book, City of the Plague God. His name is Sarwat Chada. I'll be talking with him in, in just a minute or so. He's uh, the author of Devil's Kiss from 2009. And then uh, since then, he's uh, written um, Indian mythology-inspired Ash Mystery, series and the epic high fantasy shadow magic trilogy so we'll talk with sarwat here in just a minute tomorrow uh... Jan Worth nelson will be joining the uh, roundtable regulars for armchair politics going to be an interesting one i think in consideration of the week that we've had uh, also joining us tomorrow in the first hour of the show will be uh... From University of Michigan Flint economist Chris Douglas. He stops in about once a month and, and we get a chance to talk about uh, what's going on with the economy and uh, and we'll do that as well. So stay tuned we've got lots of good show coming and uh, great to have you along. <music> Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. Um, my my guest this hour is, uh, well, is bringing you the uh, latest in the Rick Riordan Presents series. It's a book called City of the Plague God by Devil's Kiss author from 2009, Sarwat Chada, who joins me by phone. Sarwat, welcome to the show. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. Um, Sarwat, is this uh, the first time you've published under the Rick Riordan Presents
3: uh, brand? Yes. It's been an interesting journey. Rick and I have crossed paths for uh, a few years prior to this. He read a series I wrote a few years back the Ash Mystery series that was delving in Indian mythology, and that's when he first contacted me. And since then, we've been overlapping. My previous series, Shadow Magic, was with his editor, Stephanie Lurie. So I've been on Rick's radar for quite a while. And then when the Rick Ryden Presents line was being set up, he very generously reached out for, to me asking whether I want to join in it. How could I say no? So, yeah, <laughs> well, this exactly. is my first book, but hopefully the first of many.
4: Um, exactly. And, and speaking of the first of many, um, since you've uh, written series before, is this uh, City of the Plague God part of a series or, or the beginning of a new series?
3: I'm hoping it's the beginning of a new series. That really depends on everyone out there, really. So I have naturally plans to build it up, but the book itself is utterly standalone. So even though it's Mesopotamian mythology, I I think it'll be a great introduction. It's not something you feel that, oh, right, I I have to have researched this before I even delve into it. So beginning, uh, hopefully, of a new series, but... It stands alone perfectly by itself. I
4: I always wonder, sir, if if when somebody's writing a book, um, they they maybe start out thinking it's a it's a one off or a standalone book, and then they get to the end and go, "But wait, there's more." <laughs> is it is it like that for you? Or yeah, writers have got a right basically. Or, or is it is it that there's more of that story to tell?
3: I think writers have got to write, and part of the fun, certainly for me, for doing mythology is all the amazing research, historical as well as mythic, and the more you discover, you think, well, there is way more than could be fit into a single book, and I really, really want to go in other directions, bring these gods in, these monsters, and so it's, yeah, as I said, writers have got to write, and the more material that's bubbling away, frankly, the better. And so it's one of those situations where, because Mesopotamian history is so long and covers so many amazing characters, there is just the feeling that, wow, one could really go on and on, and there'd always be something new and exciting to put in. Is, is there mythology in all cultures? Oh, absolutely! I think um, it's something that I was talking to Rick Ryden about only yesterday. There is a uh, there was a lecturer called Joseph Campbell that many of you may know because he was the guy that inspired George Lucas to create Star Wars. He talked about the monomyth, the idea that all cultures have a central myth and he researched myths from all over the world and realised there were similar themes and I think that humans are storytelling creatures I think that's literally I think that's probably the first thing we developed how do we tell a tale And even if the tale was the mammoth is over on the other side of that hill that I think it's inevitable. We just grew we we told stories from the very, very, very beginning and I don't think we're ever, ever gonna stop. We can't stop.
4: <laughs> yeah. It's it's almost like the first conversation is somebody says, Ow, and <laughs> someone else says, Well what happened? And the guy says,
3: Well, once upon a time <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, and then you know, the, uh, and it would have started off with like a weasel bit me. By, but by the time it's gone around a few campfires, it was a herd of mammoths attacking him. Yeah, exactly. Um, but on the subject of of
4: mythology, and this isn't your first delve by any means into uh, mythology, um, how much of it is inspired by by
3: existing myth? Oh, I think a lot. It's right. So, if I can give a little bit of background, yeah, Meseta mythology uh, has been is the arguably the oldest mythology in the world. It's almost five thousand, certainly four and a half thousand years old. And as I was researching it, the amount of times I realised the stories I grew up with probably originated out of Mesopotamia, and the, the most famous is that I live in London and up the road from me is the British Museum, and there's this ancient, ancient stone called the Flood Tablet that was translated by experts in Mesopotamia back in the 19th century, and it tells a tale of a man who was warned by the gods that there was going to be a great and terrible flood that's going to wipe out humanity. So the best thing for him to do was to build a boat and grab as many animals he could and haul them on. And there you have it, the first version of the Noah story. And so you, that's what's so exciting about Mesopotamia, because it's near east and our monastic religions grew out of that. There's a, an amazing overlap that there are stories that we suddenly we're familiar with, that we grew up with. And you realize, wow. Um, they originated originated out of Mesopotamia. So the the excitement of seeing how the dots join is one of the best things, I think, about researching and writing about mythology. And stories that are on one side of the world will have parallels on the completely other side of the world. And I think it reinforces this idea that humans have this single, this monomyth that we all perceive heroes and villains in exactly the same way. And in the last four and a half thousand years, nothing has changed really. We still have the same aspirations. We still admire the same virtues and we still fear the same vices.
4: You know, uh, um, Sarwad, it was almost like you were reading my mind because I was going to ask you about the overlap (laughs) of mythology and and religion, um, when you're talking about gods, like in this book, City of the Plague God, um, how much uh, is that based on people trying to explain the way things are? And and um, how how did how does mythology inform contemporary religion?
3: I think it's just an extension because what we now term mythology was a religion to people for thousands of years. So the Mesopotamians believed in their gods as seriously and as devoutly as we believe in Allah or Jehovah or or God, Jesus or Shiva or whatever name you want to give them. So I know that some people are sensitive about the overlap between religion and mythology, but I think that's quite pedantic. I think that they are really a continuum, and I th- one of the things that I find fascinating is that, hey, Mesopotamian, the ancient Greek stories, whichever ones you want to pick, are thousands of years old, but we enjoy them with a freshness that is undiminished because they talk t- to us about the human condition, and that's really really the purpose of them, I think that it's explaining something that we really, really feel in a fundamental way and you may dress it up with gods and magical monsters but it's really talking about us isn't it? That the things that we fear, the things that we admire have just been represented in larger than life stories because I think that's a way of attracting someone's attention. So I really feel that we're... um, the overlap is incredibly significant between religion and mythology, and it's incredibly powerful and I wouldn't want it any other way, because it talks to us about the things that really, really matter. It was something that I was discussing in a previous chat was you can have academic understanding that appeals to the mind, but what we're talking about is stories, and those are about appealing to the heart, and we are as much as we'd want to consider ourselves governed by our head, we're not really. We're governed by our passions and our feelings, and that's what mythology and religion tap into and explore so brilliantly. We'll
4: have more with YA author Sarwat Chada straight ahead.
3: Hello, out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger, T I double G U R, that spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner's program on account of because he's so bouncy.
5: <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do you can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app you can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters.
4: Wearing a mask helps prevent the spread of COVID-19. Wear your mask correctly. Wash your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds before putting on your mask. Holding the ear loops or ties Make sure the mask covers your nose and mouth and secure it around your chin. Try to fit it snugly against the sides of your face. Make sure you can breathe easily and keep the mask on the entire time you're in public. To learn more, visit cdc.gov coronavirus.
5: This is Congressman Dan Kildee and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program.
4: We'll have more with YA author Sarwat Chada straight ahead. How how much does your background in engineering haunt you when you're writing about magic and supernatural uh, abilities?
3: <laughs> Um, that's quite funny because in my very, very first book, Devil's Kiss, the climax took place on a building site. And my editor had to go through it and say, well, really, we are not interested in the size of the I-beams that are holding it. With this <laughs> and so, um, well, I actually what's fascinating is the engineering. I used to be a designer. And so for me, you were sitting down, you had a project, you had the structure of the direction you wanted to go, and then bit by bit, week by week, you built you built it. And I really feel writing a novel, telling a story is the same sort of thing. You've got the skeletal frame that's got to be strongly supported, otherwise, it's just going to collapse because the reader can pick holes and say, Well, that makes no sense, and there's another vast plot hole. So, funnily enough, I think there's a, a similarity in the structure, literally building a structure whether it be a tower block or whether it be a story you've got to get the foundations right you've got to make it um, secure you've got to make it inviting you've got to make it the sort of place somebody wants to live in and and does it
4: um, does it lead you to create certain boundaries that that your characters um, can't expand beyond Are there
3: there rules for gods? absolutely. There are, and there's also, in a way more importantly, rules for heroes. Um, There's one of the things about writing that you can't really do in engineering is you can't head in a direction that you don't know your way out of. In engineering, you've got to have a plan to the nth degree. But I... It's chapter twenty nine of City of the Play God, where I put the characters into a predicament that I had no idea of how they were going to get out of it. And bear in mind that was still, you know, two thirds of the way story through. Uh, two ways, two thirds of the way through. But what was b- because the characters had restraints. There were certain things by now that. They were able to do, for example, sick my hero. He's not a fighter. He works at his parents' deli. He likes making shawarmas. That's basically his superpower. And so, when they face some great and terrible monster, I couldn't have him suddenly whip out a battle axe and hack it to pieces. And so, there was a restraint on him that actually made me think much more creatively about him, and so I think that's what's brilliant about restraint. If the characters can do everything, then where's the challenge? If they've got a magic spell for every predicament, then you know they're always going to succeed. You really want the reader to think, wow, this is, this is way out of their comfort zone. I've no idea how they're going to get out of it. And when they do, though, the reader think, oh, wow, that really made sense. I completely believe it, even though it's so I'm so uh, beyond predicting. And so I think the restraints only strengthen your story because it um uh, keeps attention. I think that's actually a nice way of putting it. The boundary keeps attention.
4: That's um that's what I was wondering about because uh y- you know it seems like if you're if you're writing and you can just make up uh powers and abilities on the fly <laughs> then you know where where is the tension um when you set out to write a story do you have a story in mind and match it to a myth or do you research myths and and then think oh this one would make a nice story
3: both I think that's really the best answer I can give. When I wrote Ash Mystery, this is like back in 2010, um, I'd been reading loads of Indian mythology, and I'd visited some amazing sites out in India, and I knew that I had a setting, I knew I had mythology, but I didn't have a character. So the character and the story really came second. However, with City of the Play God, it was the other way around. I had the character. I really, really had this clear idea of sick. This thirteen-year-old Muslim kid, born and brought up in New York. And when I was asked to join Rick Ryden Presents, it was that was my starting point. I knew I wanted to have a Muslim protagonist. But when you do stories with Arabian or Middle Eastern settings more often than not you always end up with the Arabian Nights so it's going to be genies it's going to be flying carpets and magic lamps which have been done a thousand times before and so I had the character but I didn't have the mythology with Sig but I knew where he came from, and then as I did more research, it was just, it was one of those few amazing eureka moments where I thought, oh, of course, it's going to be Mesopotamia, and nobody else, it's not particularly well known, and so that actually made it even more exciting because there's that sense of, oh, yeah, I can explore it before everybody else.
4: For a lot of people, Sarwat, writing is, is kind of, um, oh, what should I say, um, uh, solitary you know it's it's something you do whether you you know go to, go to a cabin in the woods and come back months later with a book or or whether you you know sit in a coffee shop with a with a laptop however you go about it it's usually something people do very much by themselves do you enjoy the feedback you get from from readers and is it kind of tough to be putting out material during the uh during the pandemic
3: yeah it was one of those really weird conversations where because i wrote a story about a plague rampaging through society and then suddenly there is a plague rampaging through society uh that was quite freakish that um, i i think partly because of my engineering background you were really let left alone to get on with design in a fairly solitary. And the thing that I really miss is working in an, oh, this sounds so bizarre, working in an office environment. I miss background chit-chat and being able to take a little break and have a bit of banter with people. So, yeah, it's solitary. I There's no way around that, I don't think. But i 've been doing it for like ten years now, so what 's really nice is i 've got a nice little routine, and of course, one takes those breaks, touches touch base with people. One of the things I really love doing is because I write children and y a is going to do school events because there's, there's no audience more brutal and honest than a, a bunch of hundred kids giving you their opinion and if you can handle that, frankly, you can handle any criticism and and if they're
4: if they're liking what they're they're seeing and hearing; um, they can be more appreciative as yeah, well. That,
3: that is actually one of the highlights of I think my entire career. When I the first book I brought out, Devil's Kiss, I was doing an event actually in America, and there was this great queue. All these kids, high school kids wanted to get their book signed, and one kid came up, put the book on the table me a sign says this is the first book I've ever read cover to cover and he was like 15 or 16 and you think isn't that that isn't that amazing and so it's like no matter what else and I remember that moment really really sharply and really really clearly and that was like 2009 now and it's no matter how good my engineering designs were I never felt I made that sort of impact on just one person's life and for me I felt that was actually really quite profound actually and it also tapped into something that i strongly felt for me i became a reader because at primary school i the teacher read the hobbit to me Uh and i must have been six or seven and for me that opened this magical world that i you know this doorway and this narnia thing and i think i stepped through it then and i've never really really come back and it's always been, and again, that's something I remember so sharply, so clearly. And I tell you, me being seven was a long time ago. And so I think to bring a, even one reader a, a book, I think that's, that's fantastic. That, that is. And,
4: and you're not the first writer I've heard say that, that, that that is one of the most rewarding things when you realize you've inspired a young person to take up reading. in a a serious way Um, Mm. when you're writing do you do you feel yourself talking to an audience or do you get so immersed in the story and the characters that you're just in your own world
3: I think the first draft is utter immersion um, in my own world because it's all exploration so you don't want to get distracted by other voices But I've got, for example, my my children, they're now older teens, and so they're brilliant first readers. And of course, my wife is one of my first readers. So once I've got the first draft in pretty robust condition, they often go through it and then we get feedback. So that's when I start introducing other voices and opinions, because one of the problems with doing it all yourself is you can get really blinkered to the direction that you're going and there have been times where I've gone down this path and my wife said, right, this is just not working and as a writer, of course you feel crushed by something (laughs) like that, but She's always been right. She's always been right. So there's that, you know, you've got to take a deep breath, take a step back and, you know, calm yourself and say, right, you know, what isn't working, then just get through it. And um, that, so I really feel that the first draft, you've got to keep your head down and not... Worry too much about what other people think because other because nobody thinks the same thing. It's only until you've got all those words on a page can you get a sense of how it's working. And then if you know, if ten Russians tell you you're drunk, it's time to sit down. Basically, so I think that's part of the you know the second and third draft process.
4: When when you start writing, do you, do you have a, a fairly strict outline or? Once you know the arc of the story, does the story kind of write itself?
3: I, my outlines are literally only one page long, and so they're sort of very, very rough, go from A to B to C to D. But then each chapter, I try and keep an open mind, If because actually, in fact, I cannot think of an... Situation. I cannot think of a book that I've written where I didn't go off in a completely different tangent because some character did something unexpected. And that's actually what you really live for when you're writing is that revelation to you as the writer that you thought, oh, wow, I never thought this might happen. And the fact that it has happened, and the fact that I don't know where it's leading, is actually really exciting. In fact, more exciting than the path I thought I was going to be going down. So I think for me, having a loose—I have a loose structure because I think that gives me a sense of okay, I have a a fairly solid idea of the world that I'm trying to explore, and the characters that are involved in it. But I don't know which bit of this world they're going to head towards. But that's that's fine. I think it makes the writing process longer, but that's no bad thing either. The the novelty of writing just never wears off.
4: When you're writing, um, especially about diverse characters, Sarwat, um, and and about mythology that may not be familiar to your audience, um, does that require you to set up a little bit more explanation?
3: It's, I think that's quite an interesting question because it's something that I've thought about I'm a huge fantasy fan, like I said The Hobbit for me is my favourite book of all time, Red Lord of the Rings, I've got shelf fulls of fantasy books but it was that when I started writing I realised wow They've all kind of got dragons and knights and elves and dwarves in them. And so there was a sense that fantasy itself had become unfantastical. Does that make sense? It, yeah, it does. Uh, There was a certain, it become it, it become its own trope that the books that were meant to be exploring brand new realms and brand new ideas were just sort of, you know, some of them are amazing derivatives of Tolkien, but nevertheless, you could really, really see Tolkien was the godfather of the entire genre. And then, once I started delving into non-European fantasy, that thrill, a fantasy, came back where you thought, wow, this is something I've never come across before. It's exciting in a brand new, fresh way. And it, I felt that, that was what fantasy should always be you 're going to ha i 'm as guilty as the next person there 's a certain comfort in reading a genre that you really really love, but every now and then it 's brilliant to throw something different into the mix and to get the reader back on the edge of their seat where they don 't know where it 's going to go because this creature or this hero isn 't the sort that they 've come across before, so I think that the more the more widespread influences you have in the in your writing. The stronger it 's always going to be it that 's inevitable, and if you just read within a narrow genre and then you write that genre, yes, you may know that genre really, really well, but what are you doing you' just trapped you 've trapped yourself in the tropes that people have come across a thousand times before, and that uh, there are fans for that. They want to pick up a book where they say, "Yes, it's all about fighting a dragon." But from a writing point of view, I think it's always exciting to be exploring something different. And when you're
4: when you're telling the stories that you tell, um, is there is there a moral to the story? Is there is there something to be learned other than um, the the uh, uh, outcome of of some adventure?
3: If you're going to commit to... I've spent three years with this story, basically. So if you're going to commit that amount of time to a project, it's got to be something you feel really, really strongly about. Otherwise, why bother? And I think you wouldn't be able to maintain your enthusiasm for it. And so simply put, for... City the Plague God, it really, really boils down to a simple thing. Six, love for his family. I felt that was something that was incredibly powerful and incredibly important in City the Plague God because one of the other classic tropes with children's fiction is the kids are always orphans. Yeah, you need to get rid of the parents. And I thought, no, for most kids, our parents are still around. But what does that mean? And I really wanted... That, to be clear, Sick loves his family. He wants to do whatever he possibly can to save them. And that's something that I think we all feel incredibly strongly. So if there's, it's less a moral than an observation uh, that this is what is important to me. This is what's driven me to write this book. And I hope as a reader, you will feel some of that as well. So, yeah, I think trying to write a moral is probably a bit of a dangerous part to go down. But if you feel something really strongly, I think if you feel something really sincerely, that the reader will pick up on that. Otherwise, you don't want to be writing a mechanical, i say that as an engineer, a mechanical sort of book that just goes from situation to situation to situation, because that's basically... And even though I love gaming that 's a computer game. What you really want is for the person, for the reader to feel what to a degree what you were
4: feeling when you wrote it. How important is six humor to the uh, uh, enjoyment of this story
3: absolutely critical <laughs> um, I think because because the story goes in fairly dark directions um sick. Would only have survived it if he had his humor to fall back on, and I think that 's something that is an amazing safety mechanism that we're that are built into us that no matter how bleak it gets, if we can actually make fun of it, we are able to overcome the fear, perhaps and maybe even the hopelessness we feel in whatever situation it happens to be. And so sometimes it may be a very gallows humour and black comedy, but Sick, I think, actually has the right attitude to his trials and tribulations. There is that moment, because he realised in some sense how bewildering, bizarre it all is, and that's when his humour genes will spark off. And I think that's a, a, that's, a that's how he's, he managed to get through it all. If he really, if he didn't have that, I think he would have been utterly crushed. And I think that applies to a lot of us.
4: Well, well, we have to end it there, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website?
3: Yes. Uh, it's com. S-A-R-W-A-T Chada is C-H-A-W-D-A. Um, I'm on Twitter under the same name, so I'd love to hear from you. It's, um, the books come out today. It's all been incredibly exciting, and thank you so much for having me, Tom. All right. Take care.
4: That was uh, Sarwat Chada. He is uh, the newest under the brand Rick Riordan Presents. Um, City of the Plague God is the name of the book. He is uh, also the author of Devil's Kiss, and um, he's had uh, several award winning uh, inspired books in uh, the Ash Mystery series and the uh, Shadow Magic trilogy. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program.
7: I remember the night mom was pounding on her drums. She called me to her side. She said, son, you're growing up. Pretty soon you're going to drive. And daddy heard the commotion and came came in tap dancing, playing his sixth string. And they both looked at me and they said, son, before you get behind the wheel of a car, you listen to me. If you're texting while you steer, don't drive. If you've been drinking beer, don't drive. If you're talking on the phone, your are bald and it's starting to snow Don't try! If yeah, your foot can't reach the pedal Don't try! If you're wearing no apparel Don't try! If yeah, you took an illegal prescription Don't try! no one understands your addiction Don't try! Don't speed, don't breathe, don't breathe, don't tweet, don't shave, don't rave, don't wave, don't eat And don't put no makeup on Or shave You know you're not supposed to do that Ugh. If you gotta do something you're not supposed to do, you can go ahead and step on my blue suede shoes. Ah, go ahead and scuff them up. If you're driving with your knees, don't drive. If while you roll, know you eat. Don't drive. If you don't know how to drive, don't drive. If you've been psychedelicized, don't drive. If you're kissing on your booze. Who's kissing on you? Don't try. Yeah, you've been drinking at a bar. Don't try. Yeah, there's guns in the car. Don't try. Don't groom, don't shave, don't tweeze, don't nurse, don't you see things in your ears or rummage through your purse. Ugh. Don't do that. Huh. If you won't something you're not supposed to do, you can go ahead and talk on my Fu man shoe. Go ahead, I don't care. Watch me tear. <laughs> if you feel like a nap, don't drive like this. If there's a pooch on your lap, oh, it's dangerous and
6: creepy. If you're feeling really
7: wired, no and, around, no, down. if your license is expired, don't you drive oh. around the <laughs> town? supposed to do, you can go ahead and step on my Blue's Way shoes, scuff them up, then go ahead and pull on my full man shoe, yeah, if you want to do something, you want to do something that's good, if you're feeling like any of that stuff, don't drive, make sure you got a clear head, ow, ugh, Suck it. Hi, this is Joe Byte from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
4: If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home, except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you're worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips,
1: visit cdc.gov.
4: Hey, this is Tom. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hopper. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions.
7: Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis.
1: Hi, this is Rochelle Ray.
7: Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the
4: Nashville office.
1: I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemptail.
4: The Town Sumner program celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan.
7: of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Lifebuoy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Lifebuoy for hands and
5: face as well as the bath.
6: Time Sumner Program.com. The Sumner Program.com.
5: Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
0: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
8: I would like to take you to the opera where you are going to hear a Mozart opera, which is nothing but an opera written by Mozart. (laughs) This is an opera in one act and it begins when the curtain rises, otherwise you couldn't see a thing. (laughs) The stage setting is a kind of a forest there are two large trees, which of course indicates the forest. It's a kind of a small forest, but it's a forest. <laughs> First the tenor comes in, he is supposed to meet his soprano, as they usually call those ladies. <laughs> but she's a little late this particular season, so he hides himself behind one of the trees in order to surprise her when she comes in a little later, which she does. So when she arrived, she can't find him because he is occupied behind one of the trees. <laughs> now, he's with a knife carving her name into the <laughs> scenery. Now, she doesn't know that he is there, but, uh, well, as a matter of fact, she must know it because she saw it doing rehearsals. <laughs> Either she pretends that she doesn't know it, or she's just plain stupid. <laughs> or whatever it is, she gets across the stage somehow and takes place behind the other tree, which for the occasion hides her to a certain extent. Now. The chorus comes in, but nobody knows why, except Mozart, and he is dead. (laughs) And that's just too bad. Next, your father comes in and he is a very old man, primarily because she is a very old soprano. (laughs) And he is very angry because apparently she is not his daughter. Now, this has nothing to do with the opera. I found that out myself. <laughs> and that's what we call research. <laughs> anyway, he decides that he has had enough of her, so he tells her to die, and that's exactly what she's gonna do. <laughs> and with that, the opera ends and people can go home. Now I take you to the Opera House where you hear the conductor's footsteps when he enters the orchestra pit. Here he comes. And yeah, he walks sideways. <laughs> and this is the overture. <laughs> This, ladies and gentlemen, was the first part of the overture. (laughs) Now you hear the second part, and that's exactly the same. (laughs) Now this little blip is an extra blip. We have in case we shoot one short of blips. That has never happened, so we have a lot of bloops left over. (laughs) Now the curtain rises and the tenor arrives. He's a little tall fellow, he comes in. (laughs) He comes in from the left in a single file. He goes behind the tree right away. (laughs) Now, the leading lady arrives. She is supposed to fill the part of the soprano. She not only fills it, she overflows it. <laughs> She's a big husk, a big. Uh, uh... She's a big soprano, that's what she <laughs> is. She's what we call a messy soprano. <laughs> she comes in in a single pile. also arrives Backwards But nobody notices The difference
5: <laughs>
8: She goes behind The other tree She can hardly wait Because <laughs> See She is She supposedly hasn't, she hasn't met him for a long time, so she is just, she's anxious. Now is the time for the chorus. The light is dimmed, so you can hardly see these people when they arrive, and that's why they're dressed in a kind of cheap underwear. (laughs) Because there is no reason to spend a lot of money for costumes when you can't see them, right? And that's the way the management of this theater feels about it, and that's the way it's gonna be. Here they come. Bread and butter. <laughs> now they're all in and they fool around in the dark for a little while. <laughs> this is a mixed chorus. <laughs> Bread and butter. <laughs> now they're out, they get their money and go home. Next, a baritone comes in and sings Torreador, Torreador, but he finds out that he's in the wrong opera. Now the father comes in, the old man, and he is the basil. How low can a man get? (laughs) Well, anyway, he has almost now told her what he had to say And she understands him quite well So now she prepares herself to die But before she dies, she sings an aria The so-called (laughs) die-aria she seems very happy about it (laughs) she dies by stabbing herself between the two big trees
0: Another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
6: Now,
2: when a virus comes along that's spreading like a plague and and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well unless you want to bid our free society farewell there. Super bad transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad transmittable, contagious awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better <coughs> Now, back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the dots were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super it's damn important that we practice isolation Cause we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation It's super damn important that we practice isolation if we don't do it then we're all gonna die If we don't do it then we're all gonna die and So I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start If you get bored just think of the immunocompromised Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilised Oh super bad transmittable, contagious, awful virus If we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us In a stretch of quarantine the last and July. A Super bad, transmittable, super bad transmittable super Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus.
7: You pilots, get off my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner Program, don't you know? Go on, go on, get out of here.
0: It's time for the Tom Sumner Program.